The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to declare that you have done a great thing. We have talked about and sung about and prayed about that great thing. You have sent us your son. And it's the season, it's the time of year in which we remember that sending. And we recall, as we have finished the Gospel of Luke at this time of season, rather than starting the Gospel of Luke, it's interesting to finish it at this time of season where we recall why you sent him. You sent him for the sake of the cross. You sent him for the sake of of offering us some remarkable blessing. That in his name, in repentance in his name, there is forgiveness of sins. A remarkable blessing, but not the main blessing. A blessing that is on the way to another blessing. A blessing that is on the way to fellowship with you now and forever. You have done a great thing in sending the Son that through him we can know you. And that knowing of you, that communing with you right now is accomplished in us as we saw last week and will be considering again this week by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The great gift, the great gift you mean for us to receive and walk in now daily. So help us to understand that. Help us to understand him and his purposes in us so that by the Spirit, through the Son, we may draw into and rest in your presence. This is our hope this morning. So make the scripture clear. Help us to think well about this. And will you draw us to a a happy and surrendered submission to you? Spirit of God, would you own this time here for the sake of owning this people here and these individual people? So I pray that you would own this people corporately, that you would own us as a whole, but then individually, one by one, you would own us. Sometimes we think about being owned, and that feels a little bit stiff, but it's sweet to be owned by someone like you. You say that we are to call you Lord, and we are to call ourselves your servants. We belong to you by your grace, and that is a good thing. So claim us again this morning in new and in deeper ways. Claim us individually and claim us as a whole and then carry us into the presence of the one who is our joy. We want to commune with him. So Father, would you empower, would you direct your spirit now to to own us and to teach us and to guide us and to clear away all distraction to teach us. So we pray this morning. Do another mighty thing here today. Grow us up in you. 
We trust this time to you. Pray for your hand on it. Pray that you would honor the Son and bring us into the presence of the Father. Thank you, Lord. We trust this all to you. Amen. Last Sunday, we concluded our study of the Gospel of Luke, finishing with chapter 24 and its several post-resurrection encounters. And as we looked at those passages, we noted how the end of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts, written by the same person, written by Luke, they, they both have a good bit of deliberate overlap. The gospel is part one. Luke intends them to be linked together. The gospel is part one of all that Jesus began to do and teach here on earth before his ascension into heaven where he was taken up to be seated at the right hand and to rule, like we saw last week at the end of Luke. That's part one. And then the book of Acts is part two, what Jesus continues to do and to teach here on earth. Though he is bodily seated in heaven, he is still present and active here by means of, in the person of, the Holy Spirit of God, God the Spirit, the third person of the one triune God. So Acts is the book of Christ's work by his Spirit in and through his church. And we're not going to work through all of this book this morning, or even this particular chapter this morning. It's, it's the sequel to Luke, so it does kind of belong right after. We're not going to go through it all. I've already done that before, and if you want to look at that, it's on the website somewhere. But we are going to consider a little bit of this sequel, kind of like, kind of like an epilogue, if you will, to the, the book of Acts, particularly one chapter, chapter 2, because of what arises in chapter 2 and one of the themes throughout the whole book that's important for us to, to, to grasp, to understand, to appreciate, and to appropriate, in fact, the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we've already seen a good bit of the, of the context of Acts chapter 2. The first chapter of Acts deals with his teaching before his ascension. We've seen some of that already. He blessed his followers and promised them after a short wait in the city of Jerusalem that he would give to them something, he would pour out on them the promise of the Father. That is, he promised to send them God, the Holy Spirit. And so they returned to the city rejoicing, and they continued to worship him and God, the Father, in the temple, praising him and waiting. And then they attended, as we see in Acts chapter 1, to the important detail of, of replacing Judas, He'd betrayed Jesus, so they, they replaced him and waited 10 more days. And so they've waited 50 days, all told, since he's ascended to heaven. And we are now on the day of the Feast of Pentecost, which was a feast celebrating the, the first fruits, the, the beginning of the harvest. A celebration of and a, a giving thanks to God, a praising God for providing what was needed for life for providing what the people of God needed to be sustained. They brought that in, and they, they celebrated, and they thanked him and blessed him for that. And on that very day, the Feast of Pentecost, chapter 2 happens. So I'm going to read the first 18 verses of chapter 2. I'll refer to a couple other verses throughout the chapter, but I'm going to read just the first 18 verses, and then make two observations from it. And... and 
Again, there are many things here in this chapter, and I'm not about all of them, but what we're after this morning in particular is this ministry of the Holy Spirit and to understand something about Him and what He is in us and for us. This is Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 18. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And stop there. Two observations from this passage, and they're essentially what happened and what do we do about that. So here's, here's the first. Christ has poured out on his church the promise of the Father. Christ has poured out on his church the promise of the Father. That language, we've seen it in, in Luke and in Acts already, promise of the Father. And when Peter preaches, the whole rest of this chapter, most of the rest of this chapter is Peter's sermon, we saw just the very beginning of it. When he preaches here, he brings up that language again. If we were to skip ahead to verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What we just read about. We just read and just saw here in the beginning of the chapter this promise outpoured. The Spirit of God 
outpoured. Like, and that language is, is trying to show some great giving, some, some new and in, in a new way, in a new powerful way, uh, to a new degree and to greater effect, this giving of the Spirit of God. He has done that. We just read about it and just saw it. And the way it happened here, the, the way God chose to do this, he could have done it just in any way. He could have picked anything, but he did it in a particular way because he wants to, to show us some things, to, to carry in this way some instructive symbolism so that we and, and they would, would think and would see some things, would process them. Now, if we were to look throughout the whole rest of the New Testament, we could find some of these things taught in explicit manner later, but he's communicating it symbolically here in how he pours out the Spirit. So we're looking not just this morning at the fact that in Christ God poured out the Spirit, but more we're looking at what did they tell us, what do these, these things tell us about why in Christ he poured out the Spirit. Verse 1, the believers were all together in one place, about 120 people were told, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Now, it's not actually a, a tornado, a, not actually a mighty rushing wind that blows into the place and blows everything apart, but it's a sound like a mighty rushing wind, like a freight train, a, a great sound, an impression created from God to make them think, make us think about what wind is about. To connect this to the, the spirit, the wind, linguistically even, that word, it, the word itself is related to the Old Testament and New Testament words for spirit or breath. It's a fitting connection because of how the effects of wind and how the effects of or, or breath or blowing air, how those effects in the Old Testament line up with what he says the spirit's going to be about. It's a fitting connection. How specifically should we be thinking about the connection? Well, here on the day of Pentecost, our minds should go in a certain direction. This is the day in which everybody around is celebrating the fruit that God has given to provide for and sustain life in his people. That's why they're all here. That's what the celebration is about. This is the day when we first realize, we bring in the first fruits, we first realize, look what God has given to us so as to provide for and sustain our lives. And then a wind comes. We put those two things together, perhaps we're thinking of a, a wind giving life, and maybe you recall God breathing into the fashioned Adam so as to create a living creature. He breathes and provides for life. Maybe you think of that. But the closest connection, the most obvious connection, is what we would see in Ezekiel 37. Jot that down, look at it later. But there is the vision of the valley of dry bones. And in that chapter, God, speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, presents to him a vision 
a, valley, a, a great collection of dead people. So dead, they're just a collection of dry bones. Skeletons scattered around. And he says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? Well, you know, Lord. He says, yeah, I do. Watch. And the bones come together and form people again, but not yet living people. And then God summons the wind. And the wind comes and rushes upon those bones, and they come to life, and they form a great army of God. And then God explicitly ties Ezekiel. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to one day pour out my spirit on a people and make them to live. I'm going to provide life right into, I'm going to press into things that look like people but aren't actually really alive. That'll happen when I put my spirit into them and they will come to life and they will be for me a great army. I'm going to gather together a people to myself who live for me. Like he blew on those bones there in that vision, here he's blowing on his people to give them life. Now at this point, true and abundant life where there had been none before. Now, it's symbolic. True, yes. But we have to see what he's doing here. Why he chose this is so that we would all sense and all feel there's the, the wind, there's the breath. That's what happens when God breathes on a people and breathes into them, and as we see then, fills them with his spirit. What he does is he breathes into them what they need for life, what they need to be sustained. He breathes into them fruitfulness. He makes them, as he's making them right now, a people that is drawn together, is characterized by fruit, and lives to God. Truly lives. Spirit blows like wind and burns like fire. Verse 3 of Acts 2. We've got a blowing wind that then we see divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Fire carries the Old Testament, often carries the Old Testament imagery of the pure and holy presence of God. Cleansing and purifying what he's near. You can think of this throughout the Old Testament. God met Moses at the bush, and it was the burning bush. And he took off his sandals because the place where he was was holy ground. Now, God didn't show up there because it was holy ground. It became holy ground because God came there. And then God hovered over his people in the exodus and the wilderness wanderings, a pillar of fire over them at night. And he took them to a mountain that smoked and burned. He cleansed then the, the altar in his house, in his temple with fire. 
and predicted that when Messiah came, he would baptize with fire and burn away all that was unholy, all the unholy chaff in judgment. Throughout the Old Testament, this our God presents himself at times as a pure fire and as an alarming fire. Now, indeed, at times he presents himself as a, as a tender shepherd and, and as a mother who, who cares and, and as a friend and as, as a helper. Lots of different ways that God presents himself to communicate different things, but at times he communicates himself as a fire. A pure fire and an alarming fire because he is a fire that is his own source of sustaining and strengthening energy. The burning bush did not actually burn the bush. It was a fire in the bush that did not need the bush for fuel to sustain it. The pillar of fire that hung over the people at night, it did not burn anything. It just was a fire that burned night after night after night after night, signifying this is my people and I am a purifying fire over them. The trees and the shrubs on Sinai did not go away. He burns as flames without the creation needing it to, to sustain him. He is independent light and he is independent heat. He is a God who burns up animals and burns up chaff, not because he needs those sacrifices to fuel himself, but because those things should be burned up to leave behind what is good. So we see here in this flame, this, this burning as flame dispensed to each and every one, we see here the presence of the almighty, holy God within each and every one. No longer just over the people as a whole, as a single column of flame, but over each and every one. Because each and every one is now a temple within which he dwells. God with and God actually within each and every one of the people of God. Why? What's he there for? For the sake of making himself known to each and every one and by so doing purifying each and every one. Fire is about the presence of God, the holy presence of God. Fire in each and every one of us is about the presence of God in each and every one of us, the holy presence of God in each and every one of us. He is committed to the work of leading each and every one of his people into paths of truth and righteousness and cleansing away, burning away from all of us what is not appropriate, it is not fitting in his house, in you. And wonderfully, these two things are, are knit together. As he makes himself known, as he communicates his presence to us and draws us to, into so that we see him and so that we behold him, as he is drawing us to show us himself, that itself accomplishes cleansing work in us. 
if you think about this, this is how it is with all of our human relationships. If you know somebody that you find intriguing and, and attractive and beautiful and you're drawn to that person, you want to be with that person, what you also find yourself doing is drawing away from things that are discordant with that person or offensive to that person or that person doesn't like or that person just doesn't do. You become like that one you're drawn to. That happens in all human relationships and all the more here with this one. God puts himself within each of us so as to change each of us, to make us like him. That's what the Spirit does, shows us God in Christ and so purifies us. So verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the, the tongues that were as of fire, they were not literally modeled. I saw a picture of this one time where some, a painter had drawn something that looked like a tongue taken out of the human skull hanging over the top of each person. They weren't actually tongues. You've seen a cow tongue maybe in the grocery store. It wasn't something like that. It's a metaphor. We still use it today. We talk about how flames lick the piece of wood. It's a metaphor, deliberately chosen because it connects well to the next metaphor. And they spoke in tongues, that is, languages. It's used here in this verse, and then later the people respond, how is it we hear them speaking in our own tongues? Verse 11. These are clearly languages the disciples are given to speak. They speak in tongues given by the Spirit who fills them. A supernatural speaking gift, clearly known human languages. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, which we're not going to deal with this morning, but Paul in 1 Corinthians will talk about tongues again, and I think he means something different there according to the context there. But the context here is quite clear. These spirit-given tongues are languages unknown to the various disciples who are speaking them, but obviously known to the people from every nation under heaven, verse 5, that are gathered here in Jerusalem and are shocked to hear Galileans speaking their own languages, the languages of the Mediterranean world. Verses 9 through 11 there. All are speaking, and then they hear these mighty works of God. This is the Spirit outpoured. So, if you put all this together, what do we have? Jesus did pour out, did give the promise of the Father. But to what effect? What does the symbolism here show us about the, the purpose of the Spirit poured out on the church? The Spirit is how Christ exercises his reign from heaven here on earth right now, his reign within the church. The Spirit is how Christ creates and causes to flourish a kingdom of people here on earth. Newly alive, 
fruitful, formed together and increasingly characterized by the attributes of God. Unified, loving, righteous. With God in our midst, within each one of us and within us, doing the work of changing us as he reveals himself to us. This makes us a people who in what we are and in how we are and in who we are centered about, a people who are different and are able by what we are able to commend the gospel with our lives and then are uniquely empowered to commend the gospel with our words. This is a people that as the wind blows on them and the fire burns over them are changed and then are given the ability to speak in a way so that all the nations can now hear and understand. That's what the crowd sees and hears. The promise of the Father poured out on his people. Another word sometimes used here is baptized in the Spirit. Immersed in the Spirit of God. Immersed in God. Changed in what we are like and given the ability to speak in ways that people will hear and understand. Not because of us, because of what the Spirit is doing through us to them. What the Father promised through Isaiah and through Ezekiel and through Joel as Peter elaborates on here, that the Spirit will be poured out on all of God's people, not just on some particular leaders, not at some particular time, not on one particular ethnic group, but on all of God's people. That has now happened. So what that means for us is that we are a different sort of people. And we need to stop right there and say, that is something remarkable. God has made us to be a people that work differently, that have a different, you might say, a different internal engine. They have a different operating system. We are a spiritual people. Uniquely so, differently so now. What this means is that here's, here's a book that has a whole bunch of stuff in it about what God is like, about what God requires, about what God forbids. And we are no longer a people placed next to this book, called to read it and become it in ourselves. Instead, what God has done is he has said, I'm going to breathe on you and bring life. I'm going to burn within you and bring holiness. I'm going to reside in you and I will make myself known to you, not tell you to just come find me, come figure me out. 
we work in a, in a totally different way. We are built from the inside out and built by God from the inside out, not built by our own focus or by our own efforts. Now, is there something we have to do? Yeah, we're going to come to that. But right away, we should, we should realize and rejoice in the fact that, that this is a totally different ballgame. Totally different ballgame. There's a time in the Exodus wanderings when, when Moses had a moment where he glimpsed something possible, maybe, one day, I hope. A whole bunch of the, the elders of Israel broke out in prophecy, anointed for a moment with the Holy Spirit. And Moses looked at that and as he discussed, is this good or bad? Is it right or wrong? Moses said, oh man, for one day when all of God's people would be like this. It's not what they're like now. Moses is engaged with a people, with, with a million people who, who have God's word, who, who have God revealing himself in profound ways as they walk through the dry land of the, the river Pardee, you know, that profound revelation of God. But he knows there's something missing. The bones have been gathered to be people, but they don't actually live yet. And he, he says, oh, there, that there would be one day when God would, would breathe into his people all of his people, the Spirit, in power and make them a different sort of person, make them a spiritual person, make them changed from the inside out by the power of God, not by, by human strength. For that to happen one day, that would, be, that would make this people a different people, a living people, a fruitful people. One day, that's happened to you. If you're a Christian, you live in the one day. This is a different type of existence. You need not live like the rest of people. So why do we? We have to reckon with that because I think if, if a bunch of us are honest, what we say is, I hear you pressing on this point, and it's a little bit like in a stick shift, somebody hammering down the gas, but you're not actually in gear. And the engine's going, and we're not moving. Why not? I, I hear... Preacher, I hear you saying that we are remarkably differently blessed. I hear over the past couple of weeks that you've been saying this is all this is moving towards the gift of the Spirit. I hear that. But without saying, you know, you and you and you, I'm not trying to accuse you of this, but is it not the case that a, for a bunch of us, the actual lives we live are not fundamentally much different than the other people around us. We have a different set of things we know. 
but love and joy and peace and patience and rest and winsomeness. Mm. Sometimes, maybe. Other times, no. How you, how you deal with peer pressure, how, how you struggle with what other people think about you, how you worry under the pressures at work, how, how you fear the report from the doctor, how you watch the stock market with anxiety, how you think about threats from North Korea or ISIS or whatever is just a lot like other people. Why is that? I mean, what you were just saying is that we are different, but we're not. Okay, let's think about the second point. How do we receive this gift today and therefore live the life God means for us to have? So I'm, I'm asking a question that essentially is about how do we be different than that? And just to plot out the next few minutes here, I'm going to get around to answering that question, but I've got to clear away some other things first. And when I get around to answering it, I'll tell you, here's the answer. So here's a second observation. How do we receive this gift today and therefore live the life God means for us to have? Peter's preaching this great sermon, occasioned by the outpouring of the Spirit, and his main goal, we have to acknowledge in, in the sermon, his main goal is to establish in the eyes of this people that Jesus is the Messiah. His, his train of thought is, look, the Spirit is outpoured, like God said was going to happen with the Messiah Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah because it's in his name that is outpoured. Jesus is the Christ, in fact. That, that's his point. And he brings it home to the crowd in verse 36 with conviction. Let all the house of Israel know for certain God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The crowd struck by that. What do we have to do? What should we do? Help us. What should we do? Peter says, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is his conclusion to where his sermon ends. So don't miss his focus that he's trying to get the point across. Jesus is the Christ. He is the one we are called to repent towards. In his name is forgiveness of sin. That's how we are saved. But also notice this. Be forgiven of your sins is not the end of his thought. It's not even the end of his sentence. The end is the promise the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receiving that gift, that, that promise, that's presented to us here as the final step, as the end goal. And notice this. 
Maybe I can put it like this. And that's not just for church people. That's the thrust of verse 39. See it in its context. Peter's speaking. It's like if, if I'm Peter speaking, behind him he's got 120 longtime followers of Jesus speaking in these various languages, clearly spirit-covered people, whatever that means, they're, they're different. And Peter says to the others, and you all are responsible for crucifying Christ, whom you crucified, he says to the crowd, as the crowds demanded Jesus' death. This promise that you're seeing on us, verse 39 it's for you too. Whoever and wherever you are, everyone that God calls to himself. So he's not saying that universally, without exception, everybody on the planet gets this. Those that God calls to himself. Those people are far and wide, even you. That's what Peter's saying. They're everywhere. They're in all the nations. How do we identify them? Well, simply put, they're the ones who come. Everyone that God calls to himself, come. That's what he says. Not, not figure out, are you one of those called? He says, come, 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 come and receive this. Repent and receive this. The point here is that everyone everywhere should hear this and realize that this great gift is not just offered to those who are already in the club those who already belong. It's not a, a fringe benefit given to other people, not you. It's not given to people who are church people or given to people who are good people or given to holy people or given to people who have been longtime followers, never enemies. No. P Peter's whole point here is it's offered to you even if you crucified him. Sure, to you, it's possible, it's offered to you. You who are very near, you who followed him all the way through and were heartbroken when he was crucified, and you who yelled out crucify him and jeered and laughed and celebrated. Everybody, it's, it's offered. And it's not just the gift of forgiveness of sins, great and awesome as that gift is. It is a, forgiveness of sins is the sweetest, sweetest thing do you know what it's like to be forgiven of your guilt? Here is the offer. Peter's, Peter's first and biggest point is Jesus is the Christ. Here's the offer to you. You can be forgiven of your sins. It can be taken off of you, removed from you, cleansed, slate wiped clean. Awesome. But that's not the end. Forgiven and then you and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that promise. It's what's ultimately offered to you here. So how, how do we receive this gift today? Well, the first and perhaps most obvious step is become a Christian. Now, I know I'm talking to a room that we're mostly believers here. We're mostly believers in this Jesus already. 
So I talk and I, and I shaped some of my earlier remarks about how we live beneath, how we live like the rest. But maybe you are one of those that I was calling the rest, and you're not a Christian. Well, the offer to you is that you can become a Christian and you can become a different person. Trust Christ. Repent. Turn to Him. Turn away from yourself and to Him and trust Christ. And you can be, you will be, you will be, if you trust Him, forgiven of your sins and you will receive this gift. First, to receive this, we have to become Christians. So then what do we do? How do we appropriate then this gift? Well, it starts in verse 38. Christ must be repented towards, and in his name we must be baptized, and we want to know the forgiveness of our sins, become a Christian, just like Jesus said in Luke 24, right? Except that Jesus never said anything about baptism there. So what about that? Are you saying that to become a Christian, I need to be baptized? Or maybe I already am a Christian, but I haven't been baptized, and that's what's missing. What about baptism? Jesus never said anything about baptism when he, at the very end of Luke, said, go and proclaim this message everywhere. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. So is Peter correcting Jesus? Jesus wrong? Or is Peter corrupting Jesus? Is he adding something else in that Jesus never said? That would be strange because then later in chapter 3, when Peter again preaches a similar message, look ahead at chapter 3, verse 19, he doesn't mention baptism there. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. So what of baptism? Baptism necessary to be saved? Is baptism necessary to receive this gift? And the simple answer is no, it isn't. Jesus left it out, and he was not mistaken. Peter left it out in chapter 3, he was not mistaken. When Jesus promised the, the man hanging on the cross who was never baptized, you'll be with me in paradise, he was, Jesus was not mistaken. So, what's the deal with baptism? Baptism is not a part of the gospel, is not a part of salvation, is not a part of receiving the gift. But repentance is. And that's what Peter's getting at. Critical to see the context here. In verse 36, he just accused them of being those who crucified Jesus. And in response to what do we have to do, what he says is repent towards Jesus. Totally. Surrender yourselves to him. Identify yourself with this one that you previously rejected. And baptism is designed, what baptism is, designed to be a visible public statement about one's inner heart intentions. 
So baptism is going to show us right away whether you actually repent from self to Jesus. Baptism is going to show us. It's a way that you choose to display publicly what's going on inside. That's what baptism always was. Realize baptism is not Christian per se. Baptism was not a Christian rite. All kinds of people did it. It was a way of showing physically I immerse myself in this water like I am immersing myself in this school of teaching, in, in this rabbi or this philosopher's approach to life. I am identifying myself publicly with that. I'm owning it. I'm in it and under it. So Peter is essentially drawing a gigantic line in the sand here. You can imagine the person that he's talking to saying, I would love to be forgiven of my sin secretly, but I don't want to get on the wrong side of the authorities who dislike Jesus. He's still not turning away from himself and his self-interest and his self-approach and surrendering all to Jesus. He doesn't get it yet. You can imagine the man who says, I shouldn't have joined in to the crucifying of that innocent man, Jesus. That was wrong. And I want to ask God to forgive me, but I don't want anything to do with this Jesus as Messiah. No, no, no. No. Immerse yourself in the name of Jesus. Trust Jesus. He's calling them to repent to Christ. Repent from self and turn to him. This is critical to understand in the issue of becoming a Christian. And it's also important to understand for us who are Christians, how is it that we appropriate? How is it that we walk in, experience this ministry of the Holy Spirit? Not by baptism. But repentance is a big, big piece of it. Repentance is a big, big piece of it. The Spirit comes and dwells inside of each Christian. You can see in the terminology here, the New Testament will talk about how the Spirit of God lives in or dwells in a Christian, how we are gifted with, with gifts, the fruit of the Spirit grows in Christians. Yes, 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 that's all true Christians. And then the New Testament will command Christians to be filled with the Spirit. And an incredibly important first piece for Christians to understand, if I'm going to be filled with the Spirit, the first thing I need to do is to be not filled with me. Repentance. When the word repentance comes up, sometimes how that is expressed, or sometimes how that's heard is say you're sorry for and turn away from really bad stuff. Repent of your pornography. Repent of your theft. Repent of your hate speech. Well, sure, that too, yes, of course. 
But if we only think like that, then we often either miss what repentance means for us as individual Christians who aren't addicted to pornography and hateful in our speech and, and thieves. That's not, not applying to me, right? So I, I'm not listening anymore. Or you hear me say repent and you think I'm accusing you of something really, really bad. And what the Bible means and what I mean to say to Christians is just to echo the teaching of, of the Scripture, but also countless other Christians from our past who say repentance is the constant beat of our Christian lives. And if we don't understand it, we don't understand who we are. The present command, the, the, the continual ongoing command to Christians be filled with the Spirit can be matched by the present ongoing command of, of repent. Every moment, yesterday, countless little things come up in, in my life and in your life too, and this morning as well, I'm sure. Little things, just thoughts in my head where I get, I get bent. You get a little bent about something and you think, that's not right. Maybe you don't even say anything about that. Maybe, maybe nothing in your actions shows itself as, as anger or resistance. or just That's not right. What happened there in you, Christian, is that your flesh, yourself, rose up and said, I should have. And the call of God is, be filled with the Spirit and repent and say, no, here's my life, Lord. Repent. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't even say anything. It was your heart. Repent. And then if you watch closely, another five or ten minutes, it'll happen again. Repent. No to self. Yes to God. No to my own way. Yes to your way. No to my own resources and my own desires and my own agenda. And yes to yours. Repent. And right in that repentance, once you've done that, five, 10, 15 times in an hour, you realize, oh my God, I need help. And, and literally like that, oh my God, I need help. So then the repentance looks like, no to self, yes to God, help. Because apart from you, I can do nothing. There's a humble acknowledgement of, of my inner heart's bent towards something broken. I have a flesh, I have flesh that lives still in me alive, and it wants to pull me a certain way. And I live in a world, and I have a spiritual enemy that is constantly plotting and constantly stalking and constantly pulling. No! Help! 
a humble and honest acknowledgement and a turning to God and a crying out, will you please move in, take over, renovate, and like a fire, burn away that which is dross and like a wind, breathe into me fruit. Help. If you don't, I can't. The reason that, and here I'm answering the question from the beginning, the reason that many of us don't live this different life that he's made to be for us is that we don't attend to our souls in that way, humbly repentant and hopefully crying out to him. Meaning well, often we look at the scriptures and try to obey them. Do you see how different that is from particular attention, repentance? The scriptures inform that. The scriptures show me what I am to be attending to and repentant of. And then a crying out to God for help, for fruit breathed into me. The scriptures show me what the fruit would look like. Show me who God is and draw me on after him. And I'm changed. I'm wooed towards him and towards his nature. The scriptures are a tremendous and important critical piece of that. But it's the spirit that makes the scriptures alive. It's the spirit that actually lives inside of me and takes my heart and does this to it. So a word that works well for me, and maybe it works for you, is yielding. If I describe this whole process in a single word, I use the word in my own mind of yielding. (sighs) Yielding myself to another's direction and another's empowering another's ideas and perspectives and goals. Sometimes what that looks like is prayer. Sometimes what that looks like is trusting, acting, obedience. But behind that all, critically, rests yielding. It's a word that works for me. Sometimes I find that that word doesn't work for people because it It sounds like nothing, like you're not doing anything. If that doesn't work for you, then then use humbly repent, seek, ask. Maybe those words sound like you're doing something, but if I will put it in one word, what works for me is yielding. It is not a doing nothing. It's doing those other things. And sometimes it means that I then have to actually take a step of obedience and actually do something, like talk to a person or apologize to a person. So it's very active. I don't mean yielding as doing nothing. But for me, that word captures my heart attitude. I have to yield to be filled with the Spirit. I commonly live life taking it in hand. And I have to yield it. 
here is what I need. I read it in the Scriptures. Here is what you want. I read it in the Scriptures. And I cannot do it. I cannot be it. I cannot stop that apart from your help. So help. Make me different. Give me new eyes to see. Burn away that desire within me and and show me something better. Show me yourself. Change my thinking. I'm turning everything over to him. I'm yielding it to him. And what happens then is that he directs and empowers my inner man. Directing and empowering. That's another way of expressing filling. When we do that, we should realize that God the Spirit will move and will change us. And sometimes that looks very ordinary. It looks just like I'm walking through life doing the things that are coming up on the calendar. But I'm doing them now in the power of the Spirit. I'm doing them with a joy that is real, with a hope that is real. I'm doing them fruitfully. And the type of person that God creates there and the type of people that God creates is a winsome people, a different people. People who live in another world. And sometimes, then, that can become drastically different. I say sometimes because we shouldn't live perpetually dissatisfied that sometimes isn't this time. But history is full of sometimes moments. We sometimes call them revival times. We sometimes call them renewal times when they happen in, in, in big and in geographically wide or, or they fill a whole church and a church is stirred to be different and God seems to be just on the move. That happens sometimes. And we should, we should want that. And, and as we yield to God, we shouldn't be only content with yielding ourselves, but we should want to yield our whole church and say, God, would you move in dramatic ways? And and maybe he would. Don't live dissatisfied when it doesn't happen, but don't live satisfied without it. If you can understand that tension there. Don't be dissatisfied without it, but, but don't be satisfied without it. We would want to see God move in, in amazing ways and, and to call in people in, in great numbers and, and to cleanse away besetting sins and make us a dramatically and drastically different people. We would want to see times of revival and renewal. We would want to experience those things remarkably unique and personal. Their history is also full of Christians who write about experiences when God comes and, and different than how he meets me today or tomorrow or, or yesterday or the week before, meets a person in, in great ways. 
I'll, I'll butcher the quote here, but there, there's a, I think this is what Blaise Pascal meant when he wrote about it. Yeah, I've, I've read this since, I think I read this in John Piper book one time. Should have looked it up. I didn't write it down. Allegedly, Blaise Pascal had a piece of paper in his possession when he died that, that had a date written on it and a time. And it said something like, you know, June 24th, from half past one till half past three, fire. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not the God of the philosophers, but the God of the Bible. Something like that. Nobody really knows what he meant, but it sounds like he had an experience there with God that, that moved him. There are other people. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about a couple of times in his ministry where he, he had turning points when God met him. In, in a, one period in his office, he could, he could write down the day and the time, just like Pascal. When God met him and the heavens parted and something happened to him, Those are not ordinary. So don't be dissatisfied if that doesn't happen, but don't be satisfied that it never happens. Want more of God. And say, Lord, here's me. If all you mean to do with me today is to move me to obedience in this relationship with that one person, to move me to a happy-hearted hope for this particular situation, great, that's fine. But Lord, would you pour out something on me that feels like thundering wind and looks like fire. And then walk on. That can come. The wind blows wherever it pleases. He's God. But we can pursue Him and we can desire His influence and control and His kingdom reign to be pressed into us and to, in alarming and dramatic ways, grip us and grip those around us. We can desire that and we can ask for it. And we would be blessed if God would pour it out. If God would bring such times of spiritual refreshing. If God would bring renewal and revival onto us individually and onto our church corporately. Maybe He would do that if we asked. The wind blows wherever it pleases. What we can and should do today is yield to repent from the small, not, not the grand and, and grotesque things, but the small and constant ways in which we are, are bent towards our own ways to say, no, Lord, I turn towards you. I yield myself to you. Will you lead me? Will you guide me? Will you have your way in me? Be filled with the Spirit. This is the sweetest thing God intends, God long promised, and then as we saw, God changed the, the eras. And from that day at Pentecost on, he intends that we all live a new and different life. Take him up on the offer. 
This is the Christian faith. It's, it's a life that's above this ordinary life. And it's a life that is above, not because we are better at working or we are more, more diligent and, and we strive after holiness, but because we give our lives to him and he blows and burns and makes us new. That's the good life. That's the life of the kingdom. That's the life of shalom, a gift from God to be received, yield to him. Let me pray. Father, would you have your way with us? And I want to pray that way up high and way down low where we walk most frequently, I want to pray it way up high and ask you, Lord, would you have your way with us? And maybe you would have some dramatic way with us in our families and in our church and in your churches here in this valley and that you, maybe you would move. We would ask you, would you move in, in some dramatic way? Call in great numbers of people here in this valley. Renew our church in great ways. Renew our families and renew us personally. Would you meet with us, please? And down low where we commonly walk day by day, will you make us aware? Would you make us aware of where we are, are most frequently unyielding? Lord, we are your people, and I, I trust that those of us who sit here now and listen to this, we, we all would, would say together, we want to be yours. We, we do not happily resist you. We, we often habitually and it almost feels like accidentally, inadvertently resist you. Would you point that out and draw us to repentance? Draw us then to a yielding to you. Will you pour out your spirit on us? Will you grow in us a deeper awareness of you and an increased personal holiness? Will you fill us Grow in us then, Spirit of God, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Would you grow in us godliness? Lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake and for our sake and for the sake of the nations all around us. And then will you give us words to speak you give us lives so we can speak with our lives and you give us words that we can speak with our mouths in ways that people can hear. Not that we would win arguments, but that we would be winsome towards a good and sweet God in whom there is forgiveness of sins. Apart from you, God, we acknowledge we can't do any of that.
We don't want to live apart from you. Open our eyes and lead us in repentance and lead us to you. Open our hands and make us receivers. Lift up our eyes to make us heavenward gazers. Show us yourself. Draw us on after you and use us in your kingdom. Thank you for giving us this gift. Help us to walk in it. Help us to walk in him. And it's by him, through the Son, to you, Father, that we pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.